You're listening to the Queen of Calm podcast, the podcast for calm girls by a calm girl. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Queen of Calm podcast. I'm your host, Paisley Haddad. So as always, before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank my guests, my listeners, and my social media followers for all your support, your likes, your listens, and your time for being on the show truly mean the world to me and keep the show going. I also hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving last week with your families. Um, it was a great chance to get out of the office, out of your classes. So I hope you all ate a lot of turkey or no turkey or just the sides um, and really enjoyed yourself and relaxed. Um, and thank you all for answering my question from the last episode about Jake Gyllenhaal's potential response to Taylor Swift's song. Um, it was really great to see the range and results on the poll on Instagram. And we did sort of get an answer from Jake's team. So if you want to check out what Jake's team said on the situation, head to our Instagram to find out what the results of the poll were and what Jake's team said. And speaking of Instagram, if you're not following us already, follow us at Queen of Calm Podcast on Instagram and at Queen of Calm Pod on Twitter. There you'll find a lot of announcements of guests and special events, especially one that is happening on January 13th, 2022. And I'll be sharing more details on that soon. So be sure to follow there and stay on top of everything with the Queen of Calm. So, um, talking again about that question from last episode, because you all enjoyed it so much, I figured that this week in place of the calm one of the week, we could do another question because this is a a case study, I should say, that's really fascinating me because I think that as our industry changes so much with all these new social media advancements and influencers, you know, infiltrating the PR world, I just think all of these situations that are happening in the media are just going to get more and more interesting. Um, So something that I came across on TikTok, only on my For You page, actually, um, was this video from an influencer named Kyle Shealy. And so I had not followed him before. I just came up on my For You page. But apparently he has about 2 million followers on TikTok. um, And he made this video that he really wanted to make a splash on this new gas station that opened up near his house, which was a come and go location. Um, And so he went to his friend's printing business and he printed a big poster of himself and he pretended that he had an influencer meal at Come and Go and went into the store and placed the poster in there and made a viral TikTok video saying, you know, go visit the poster and take pictures with it. And, you know, let's see if they keep it in the store and what's going to happen with it. So, of course, the video went viral, as many things do on TikTok. People went to the Come and Go location and took pictures with it. It blew up, got other brands in the comments commenting about the Kyle Shealy meal. Um, and it really took off. And I think people were really looking for that organic media moment on TikTok like, that we all enjoy. And that's why we all use the app. Um, and like I said in past episodes, and you know, I feel like I say it all the time like a broken record, but I think something that came out of the pandemic communications wise is that more and more people wanted to see the organic look, that authenticity factor with these influencers. And they also wanted them to be transparent about their real lives because we had that loss of connection over the pandemic. Um, And so a lot of advertising and influencers and different things like that, especially with TikTok that allows you to make these ads and videos straight from your phone and see these inside looks in these influencers' lives. um, I think people really look for that authenticity factor in their media. So when they saw this, this was obviously going to be a big hit on TikTok because people felt like they were in on the scheme, like they were going in, in the store with him to put the poster in there and they really wanted to see what happened. So as it turns out, Come and Go did see his video and they decided to make the Kyle Shealy meal, or as they rebranded it, the Kyle Shealy mealy, a real thing. And so it was two pieces of pizza and a Red Bull because Red Bull always also jumped on the train of the Kyle Shealy mealy and added their brand onto that collaboration. 
And Kyle made this video saying that little old him ended up on a meeting with come and go executives and they talked about different meals they could do and different campaigns. So a lot of people were so excited for him that he was getting this opportunity. Um, but then an ad age article came out where it said that Kyle had met with come and go a few weeks prior to his first video of putting the poster in the come and go location and that they were tossing around ideas of an influencer meal. And so understandably, this made his followers and people who were just organically following this whole situation on TikTok very upset because they felt like they were led on by Kyle, that they were part of a publicity moment and that it wasn't a true thing. So he was facing a lot of backlash on TikTok. So he took to TikTok and made an apology video saying that he was sorry and should have been more upfront with his followers from the beginning that he met with Come and Go. And he explained that his original video was a video to prove to Come and Go that he could handle an influencer meal and that people would be interested. But one thing that struck me weird about that apology video is that he put hashtag ad in the caption, which I think is something that immediately turns a lot of people off because they think like ad, you know, I'm not gonna listen to that. That has to do with, you know, a brand deal. It's not true. So I just think it was really interesting to see this whole thing play out. So my question to all of you is, do you think that Kyle should have been more upfront with his followers right from the get-go saying that he was trying to impress them to see that if he could handle the influencer meal? And do you think that it would have gone viral if he was upfront? So after this episode airs on Thursday, I will post the poll on our Instagram story. So be sure to go vote and I will post the results on Saturday. So head there to vote on Thursday. I'll give you a whole day after the episode to comes out to think about it and everything and what your answer will be. And then I'll put the poll up. Um, but as for this week's episode, I'm so excited to share my guest. She is so knowledgeable about personal finance and also she's a journalist. So she's going to be sharing about her journey and her tips. Um, and I was really lucky to get her on the show um, because I know this is a topic that many of us are wondering about as recent graduates as I accepted my first job, you know, a few months ago. They talked about salary and IRAs and all this. And I was like, huh? And, you know, I think I should have done more research as we all should. But um, I just think that our generation could benefit from more knowledge on their financial future and what to handle as a recent graduate. So be sure to stay tuned for all of her great advice and tips. My next guest is a personal finance reporter at NBC Universal, who has also written for BuzzFeed and Insider and has been blogging about college lifestyle and career since 2015 on her blog, Lead Out Loud. She is also currently a grad student earning her master's degree in behavioral economics. Please welcome Jasmine Sukdanan to the podcast. Welcome. Hi, Paisley. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So why don't we start out with your journey in journalism? So how did you first get interested in becoming a journalist and what was your time in college like? Sure. So actually, my journalism journey began my freshman year at Stony Brook University, where I was actually a health science major. So I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer. I didn't even know I wanted to do journalism. I thought I was going to go to med school and I had a few uh, medical related careers I was really interested in. Um, one of them at the time was as a forensic pathologist. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was um, 
a career path that seemed very intriguing to me at the time. And my entire freshman year was spent taking science courses to prepare for med school. I was even in the process of applying to this research program at school um, that I had really wanted to be a part of um, at the time. I had even joined my campus emergency response team to start building my uh, med school resume and only to realize that, you know, I didn't really think it was something that I was passionate enough about to dedicate so many years of schooling toward and also so much money toward, you know, so I had always loved writing. I actually really wanted to be an author when I was in elementary school. And so writing for me was something that became a passion of mine, specifically through blogging as well, because my biggest goal is always to give people the information they need in order to make an informed decision that best suits their lifestyle needs. And so that passion really fueled my desire to study journalism and to really learn how to create these stories and to learn how to write in a way that's going to help people get that information that they need through interviewing others, through covering events and things like that. Well, I love that story about how you, you know, made that choice based on, you know, what your personal, you know, feelings were about what you want to do with your life. And I love how you mentioned that you wanted to be an author when you were younger. That's so um, great that you were able to return to that in a different way now in your career. Um, so talking more about your, your role now. So what has it been like to be, you know, in the in the journalism industry and nowadays with everything going on and people breaking news stories and everything? And how did you find that passion for personal finance? Yeah, that's a, a really great story and a really great question. <laughs> uh, so for me, um, kicking it kind of back to college for a bit, I had really started building a lot of my writing experience through joining campus organizations related to writing. I don't know if you've heard of her campus, but I was a writer for my school's chapter and it really gave me my first taste of putting my work out there and getting a byline out there. Because from the minute I switched my major to journalism, my priority was getting an internship for the next summer. And I knew the only way to do that was to start building that experience so that I could have something on my resume to show for. And so her campus at my school really gave me that opportunity. And from there, that same year, I actually started my blog, Lead Out Loud, which at the time I named it Macaroons and Mascara. It was a <laughs> little <love> <laughs> more beauty oriented at the time, but I was still giving career and college lifestyle tips because um, my motivation for that was that I was the first person in my family to go to college. My parents didn't go and I'm the oldest of two siblings. So I didn't really have anyone who could show me the ropes and tell me what to expect or 
tell me where to find the cheapest textbooks for class or you know tell me what the most effective ways of studying were and so as i went through college i began collecting these experiences and writing down the things i was learning as i went along and i turned those learnings into blog posts for other students who maybe were in my position as well or maybe they weren't in my position but just wanted to read something from someone else's perspective or get a few extra tips related to college and career and so doing all of this writing really helped build my resume and you know it kind of at the time um, if you had anything that was like a little out of the ordinary on your resume, anything that was like your own passion project that you began, you were definitely someone who was standing out. And so that helped me get a lot of my internships, which were all like editorial internships. Um, building direct experience was also very important to me. I think much of my career has been very intentional you know i'm someone who kind of gets a goal in my head and i immediately start planning out my steps for achieving that goal so for me it's like i have point b that i want to get to i'm at point a right now so what steps do I need to take to get to point B? That's kind of how my mind starts spinning whenever I get these goals in my head. And so it makes it very easy to be intentional with all of my next steps. Was I attending the right networking events? Was I looking for the right opportunities? Were there any freelance gigs that I could take on related to what role I wanted to get? All these were things that were helping me get the role I wanted. So after I graduated from college, I had a fellowship at Insider on the food team producing food videos. And I really loved it. I thought I wanted to write about food. I'm sorry, produce videos about food and travel like for the rest of my career. It was something I enjoyed so much and I was really passionate about. And I still love all things food. I'm still a big foodie, love scouring the internet for the best New York City restaurants and things like that. Um, but then after that fellowship ended, I took on an editorial fellowship at BuzzFeed, which I was really happy about because BuzzFeed is and was at the time a huge dream company for me. I really wanted to work there. And all of my friends from journalism school were always like, you would be perfect for BuzzFeed. We could see you just working there uh, and taking on like all their product projects. And so I was really happy when I did get that opportunity. So the interesting thing about that fellowship opportunity at BuzzFeed was that you know, it was meant to run for an entire year. So I got that fellowship in March 2019. I was supposed to end that fellowship in March 2020. But the hiring manager who coordinated all of this um, for our fellow class, for our fellowship class, actually said something that really stuck with me from day one. She said to us that, you know, this is not a pipeline to hire. 
you know, and previously the idea was you got an internship at a media company you really wanted to work at. You stayed at that internship for, you know, six months, a year, a year and a half. And ideally you would end up with a full-time job there. However, she kind of turned things on its head for us and said, FYI, this is not a pipeline to hire anymore. So if you really want to stay at BuzzFeed, you need to be proactively looking for jobs at this company that you're interested in. And so that really stuck with me. And that's exactly what I did. I think it was about three or so months into my fellowship. I actually saw a role that I thought I would really enjoy. It was a role as a shopping writer on their commerce team. And, you know, shopping is a little bit of lifestyle, which I did have lifestyle writing experience. And one really important thing that I didn't realize had helped me at the time was that I made my fellowship manager very aware of what my interests were. We had different rotations during that fellowship. So when the lifestyle rotation came around, I was so into it. I was very passionate about all the writing I was creating and my manager could tell that like, I really loved covering that type of content. And so when I told him that I was applying for this opportunity on the shopping team as a writer, he had no problem feeling very comfortable with the idea that I would be a really great addition to that team because he already knew where my interests were. And so that helped me get that position. And I ended up cutting my fellowship short <laughs> by about nine months. Um, and I began that role immediately. And I stayed in that role for a while, even through uh, the start of the pandemic. I was very lucky to have been able to remain employed, you know, and as a result of the pandemic, I started really seeing, you know, the financial effects it was taking on so many different people, so many families, you know, and I think that so many other people kind of had this interest in personal finance, much like me. I think that that was where a lot of that interest came from because all of a sudden, people were Googling how to pay down debt, how to save more money, what's an emergency fund, how do you invest? All these were things that people were starting to look into. And I was also starting to look into these things as well, because I had only known a few of the basic things, you know, like I knew to save money in a savings account. I knew to have a checking account. I knew that you needed to pay down credit card debt. I knew that I needed to be paying down my student loan debt. And those were things I was familiar with, but then there was so much more that I didn't know before, you know? And so I started doing my own research on these topics. I think um, researching high yield savings accounts was one of the very first things I had Googled because I was hearing that term being thrown around a lot and I wanted to see what it was all about. And so the more I learned, 
that was where that, you know, mission, that desire of mine to inform people really started to take over. And the more I learned about finance, the more I wanted to share my findings with others. I wanted to make sure that people were learning the same things that I was learning, you know, and that they were managing their money in the best way possible to reach their goals. And so that was where that desire to get into personal finance really came from. And I was very lucky that, you know, the team at BuzzFeed at the time decided that personal finance was something that they really should be exploring as well. And when um, that opportunity came around for, you know, um, what happened was our uh, director of content had told the team that they were looking for someone to focus more on personal finance content. And they were posting a job listing. And I immediately raised my hand, threw my hat in the ring. I emailed her and said, I would love to work on this opportunity. I am very interested. I have been doing so much research into this topic and I would really love to give it a shot. And so I went through an application process just like anyone else would and I ended up getting the opportunity to create financial content for BuzzFeed. And of course that was also a learning opportunity for me to dive even deeper into finance and continue consuming financial content. And so um, eventually I left BuzzFeed and started my role here at NBC. And I've been loving creating financial content. That's so awesome, that whole story you shared. And, and going back to the beginning too, um, I just think it's so important, like you mentioned about the, getting those bylines early on because it just shows, you know, the employers that you're going to be applying for, or even like internship opportunities, just so many ways that you can, you know, show your changes in your writing over time and, you know, the experience you have. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that as a tip to listeners. Um, but also you talking about, you know, how you start with your blog and now sharing that same passion of, you know, sharing the information that you find out and what you work on with the public. I think that's such an uh, admirable thing that you do. And um, something I was talking about in my last episode with my guest was, you know, there's such a uh, a common thread with PR and journalism that we both want to be able to share stories with the public. So I'm glad that you mentioned that as well of, you know, being able to share with people the things that they need to know that they want to know about. Um, and yes, I, I agree with you as well about the personal finance topic. I mean, my, just myself from graduating this past year and, you know, starting a new job a few months ago, it's been such a crazy time to navigate all of these, you know, financial things that are going on in the world, but also like what you need to know as a young professional. So we'll get into that a little bit more later in the episode, your um, tips specifically on personal finance. Um, but going back more to your career, is there something that you could go back in time and tell yourself when you first started out that you from something that you know now? Oh, I really wish I had known I wanted to be a writer, like, from day one of freshman year. But um, other than that, um, something that I really wish I had done more of was just branching out a little bit more and 
getting to know students from other disciplines who were studying other things. My brief time within um, the health science major did allow me to meet lifelong best friends who um, are currently in the medical field now. Um, but I also wish that, you know, I had seen the importance in avoiding siloing yourself into your industry. I think that, you know, journalism and media is a world in and of itself. And there are so many other industries out there, so many other worlds out there, you know, and we don't do ourselves any justice when we just silo ourselves into what's only happening with our industry. I've really come to learn that that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make. And the more people you connect with, that's great for networking. That's also really great for improving your uh, perspective on the world, improving your perspective on what's going on in other places. And so branching out a little bit more and growing that sort of working relationship with other young professionals in different industries is something that I really wish I had done a little bit more of. It's always not too late. You know, you can like do that on LinkedIn, for example, reach out to people who have interesting careers that you want to learn from, you know, ask questions, join different Facebook groups. So it's not too late, but it's definitely something that I wish I had taken advantage of coming from a college campus that was so big and had so many different degree programs. Yeah, that's such a good point you make. Um, I feel like, you know, as a communication student, at least from my experience, you know, every single person in my classes were the same group of people that were in every every class that I took in communications. And so it was so easy to, you know, sit with those same people at events or, you know, hang out with them on the weekends. And I, I definitely see what you're saying about, you know, getting out there into different majors because, you know, um, I studied PR and journalism in college. Um, so just getting to see that, like working for the newspaper, like there's always something going on in the science department or going on here. So um, it was so important to have those connections outside of our major. <laughs> Absolutely. And you never know where your next opportunity is going to come from, you know, and so having so many different people from so many backgrounds in so many industries within your network can actually end up working to your advantage one day. Yes, and, and I love LinkedIn because it's kind of like a, a low stakes way of reaching out to someone that you admire that you want to learn more about because it's not like you're like seeing them on the street and be like, hey, can I ask you a few questions? But sending like a connection request is kind of like a, a low stakes way to, to start talking to somebody. 100%, I love the way you put that. So moving on a little bit more to your tips about journalism. So, you know, there's so many young professionals now that are starting out in journalism in this world that's still kind of different, you know, starting out virtual maybe, conducting interviews differently than before, you know, working on articles differently and having the dynamic of like a newsroom change now with all these, you know, COVID restrictions and everything. So what do you think that every journalist nowadays should have in their toolkit um, in terms of like skills or things that you recommend when journalists are just starting out? I think you're gonna love this answer. <laughs> um, one thing I think every journalist should have is an updated LinkedIn profile. 
because LinkedIn is, of course, a really great way for finding job opportunities and networking, but it's also a really great way to find sources for your stories. That's something that I definitely have uh, noticed personally. Uh, for me, what often happens is when I'm looking for a source, I might be looking for someone who, say, works at a specific organization or someone who has a very specific uh, job title uh, that I think would be able to speak to the content that I'm writing about. And LinkedIn allows me to find that person quickly and easily. And another thing that I've noticed is a lot of times when I write my stories, the person I interviewed will share a link to my story through their personal LinkedIn, um, kind of just like, you know, thanking me for sitting down with them and also just sharing, um, you know, the work that they were quoted in. And they'll often tag my LinkedIn in their post. So now all the people in their network who are seeing this post and who maybe work in a similar industry are seeing my name and visiting my profile and connecting with me and reaching out to talk about the topic or to just reach out to say, hi, hey, how are you? FYI, I have a lot of knowledge about X topic. So if you ever needed a source for a story, I'm happy to like have an informational conversation with you. So that's a really great way of getting sources for stories. And I also think LinkedIn is such a great um, tool for young professionals in general because LinkedIn gives us a way to become thought leaders in our industry. You know, it's really great when we can just, you know, share our thoughts on things that are happening within the industry, things we're noticing, any trends we think are important, any data we want to share. And so we're really giving ourselves the opportunities to become thought leaders on that specific topic. And when you put more of your knowledge out there, you're kind of also building your credibility as you go along and as you post more. I do love that answer that you gave. <laughs> that it is so important to have an updated LinkedIn. And, you know, I think there's such like a, a struggle, you know, once you find your job, you feel like, oh, well, you know, I don't have to worry about LinkedIn because I'm not on the job search. But it's, as you mentioned, it's so much more than, you know, a job searching platform. And I love that you mentioned, you know, that sharing of the stories on LinkedIn as well, because um, something I've been talking a lot with too with my colleagues and also on a past episode is how journalism has really, you know, embraced social media um, definitely a few years ago, but nowadays, like, it's just such a big part of it. And something I was talking about, too, is the rise in popularity in Twitter for media professionals, because, you know, before a lot of people from different industries were using it, no matter whether they were in, you know, communications or journalism. But, you know, it just has become like a, a journalist hub of everything they're working on, everything they're doing. So I feel like that's so exciting that there's a place that everyone can get news that's so current and, you know, ever changing. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned Twitter. And actually, Twitter is another really great tool for oftentimes finding freelance opportunities. Because 
if you follow editors or senior reporters that you really look up to at companies you really want to work for or companies you just really love, sometimes they might be looking for freelance writers. And Twitter is where I have noticed a lot of them will post their callouts for such opportunities. So if you're already following them on Twitter, you're positioning yourself to be one of the first people to know about such an opportunity. Definitely. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that as well, because there's so many more avenues, you know, in our world today for people to be finding these opportunities. And I feel like now the market is, you know, kind of in the uh, job searchers uh, corner, you know, when they're looking for jobs, especially in media. So I'm glad that you mentioned that as well. So I do want to get your expertise now on some personal finance specific topics because um, I love how all the articles that you write and how they pertain to young professionals. And I've gotten a lot of questions from listeners about, you know, besides the communications only, you know, aspect of this podcast, you know, what can I be doing in my personal life with my personal finances as I'm now getting a job and, you know, starting in the industry. Um, so my first question to you is, um, you know, how can you save for an emergency fund when you're first getting that first job and you're just, you know, getting a salary and you're trying to navigate, you know, trying to pay all these expenses now as, you know, a college graduate with college loans and everything. So how can you start building that emergency fund? That is such a great question. And I love that question. I also really, really, really love talking about emergency funds. <laughs> I think they're so important to have. And so I want to kind of start with saying the point of an emergency fund is to really give you that cushion of money to cover an unexpected expense, right? Whether that may be your pet breaks their leg and needs surgery or your car breaks down and you need to fix it, or maybe you lose your job and you still need a way to keep yourself afloat until you can find your new job. An emergency fund can you know, allow you to cover some of those things and it can prevent you from going further into debt while you're covering that cost. You know, A lot of experts recommend uh, having an emergency fund that's worth about three to six months worth of your necessary expenses and the way you would go about calculating something like that is by you know sitting down adding up your monthly expenses and for example if you wanted a three-month emergency fund you would multiply your monthly expenses by three and that would be how much would uh, amount to a fully funded three-month emergency fund so let's say your monthly expenses from one month is about $2,000 and you wanna have an emergency fund that will last you three months. You'll have to multiply $2,000 by three. And so a three month emergency fund for you will look like about $6,000. And that number can look very scary <laughs> when you're an entry level, level professional on an entry level salary. But if I were in this position, I would kind of try to make my emergency savings as simple as possible, you know, and for me, that would start by 
say, using a savings account that's connected to my checking account. Because this is as simple as possible. Most people have a checking account. Most people also have a savings account. Oftentimes, both of those accounts are linked to the same bank. So this makes for transfers that are literally as easy as picking up your phone, signing into your bank's mobile app and hitting transfer money. It doesn't get any easier than that. Then I would probably automatic, uh, sorry, automate my savings so that I'm automatically transferring a specific amount of money into that emergency account every single month. And so automatic automating your savings has a very psychological reason why it works. I've covered this in my work at NBC, and it's something that I also studied in one of my behavioral economics classes. But automating your savings works so well because we're biased towards our present selves. And when we're faced with a decision between doing something that can benefit us right now versus doing something that'll benefit us later on, we're often going to choose to do the thing that's gonna benefit us right now. And so automating our savings totally removes that decision altogether. We don't even get the chance to say that we're going to buy the thing that we saw rather than save the money. So automating your savings really allows you to bypass that uh, that part of the decision-making process. Of course, though, I think automating your, your savings probably works best when you have a fixed amount of money coming in and out each month. So, you know, it's easier to say like, oh, I'm going to transfer $100 every single month into my emergency fund. But what happens when your income fluctuates a little? You know, what happens when you are self-employed, you know, and your income is a little different month to month? All of a sudden, maybe one month you'll be able to transfer $100 into your emergency fund, but maybe the next month you might not be able to. So in this situation, I think it could be really helpful for you to create little saving rules for yourself. So for example, let's say you love going to Starbucks. You can create a rule where you tell yourself that if you go to Starbucks, you'll transfer $20 into your emergency fund every time. And that money can really add up fast, especially if you're like me and want to get your Starbucks every single day. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that these emergency funds are so important. And I think that our generation really didn't, you know, think about that before COVID. I feel like that was maybe a topic that maybe our parents were thinking about. But, you know, now as we come up on maybe two years in the pandemic, which is crazy, I feel like more and more people are preparing for these, you know, big emergency situations where they need to have this money saved. 100%. Honestly, I didn't even know what an emergency fund was until I started researching financial topics for myself. I didn't even know like why it was important to have. I didn't even know 
how to get started with one. And now it's like, wow, I wish I had known this like way sooner. Definitely. And uh, so something else too, and I love how you brought up that benefit of, you know, researching into these topics, you know, when you're just starting out and everything um, is benefits. So, you know, when a lot of young professionals like myself are just starting these entry-level positions, you know, they always hit you with, you know, what do you want for a salary? And we're offering a 401k or a simple IRA and all these different benefits. And, you know, it's very intimidating at first to be looking at all that and be like, what should I choose? What's best for my financial future? So, what are your tips for navigating, um, you know, these benefits that you're getting from your entry level job? That's a really great question. And I love that question so much. I think um, one thing that I want to put out there is that some entry level professionals, depending on the company they work for and the role they're working in, uh, may not be eligible for company benefits. You know, so this could be like if you're an intern um, or if you're working in a fellowship role, you might not even be eligible for benefits. I know when I graduated college and started working my first fellowship, I was not eligible for benefits. Um, at the time, it wasn't really something that I thought too much about because, um, you know, I just wasn't super cognizant of that at the time, but now that I'm uh, much more aware of my money management and my finances, it's definitely something that I'm thinking about. Um, however, if you are in a role where you are eligible for benefits, the absolute worst thing you could probably do is to take on a very passive role when it comes to your company benefits. That means not asking questions, not even reading any of the benefit emails you receive, uh, not even logging into your company's benefit portals to see what's available to you. Avoid, totally avoid taking on a passive role when it comes to what your company is offering in terms of benefits. I know it can be extremely confusing and very overwhelming, but if you feel this way, then you should consider asking some questions about what you don't understand. Most companies actually have an HR contact that you can reach out to who should be able to answer all questions you have regarding your benefits. And I think it's really important to actually ask that HR person if there are any upcoming benefits training sessions you can join to kind of get to know your benefits a little bit better, understand how to navigate your benefits portal, know what you're supposed to sign up for and the deadline for signing up for those things, know what the 401k policy is, know how to change how much you're contributing to your 401k and things like that. And if there are no sessions of that nature, then I think it's really worth asking that HR person if they would be willing to sit down with you for just 30 minutes to go over what you need to know about your benefits. 
Yeah, it's it's so important to be aware of, you know, these things that are going on with your job, because I feel like it's so easy to just say, oh, I'll handle that later. I'll look into that another time, you know, especially when you're busy working and these emails come up. But, you know, um, it's I think especially like we mentioned before, the emergency fund and the pandemic, you know, having these, you know, different financial avenues to get into, especially when you're young, that you might regret when you're older, that if you don't take advantage of, I think it's important to you know really get into those early. 100%. I absolutely love the way you put that. Um, there's a lot in there that is so important to make sure you're staying on top of. And so another question I have for you as well is so now that you know, these young professionals, myself included, are making this this money and building up their finances and they're getting involved in their benefits. When is the right time to get a credit card and start building up your credit score? That's a really great question. Um, and like you said, I think that that's a question that um, a lot of people are very curious about. Um, I think that a credit card can be a really, really important financial tool, but it's always a very personal decision to make. And so the right time for one person may be very different from the right time for another person. I know for me, um, when my dad told me that I should get my own credit card, I was actually really stressed out by that. <laughs> I know a lot of, you know, uh, college students my age would probably be like, oh my gosh, finally, like, yes, give me my own money. <laughs> it's about time. But for me, I was very stressed out about it because I was very afraid of messing up you know, getting a credit card and a credit card in your own name just seems like such this, such a big marker of adulthood. And I was very afraid of making a mistake. I was afraid of overspending. I was afraid of missing a payment or doing something else totally wrong that would like screw me up for a life. <laughs> um, but I didn't let my dad know that because I was also afraid <laughs> that he would backtrack and be like, oh, never mind. Maybe you're not ready for this. Um, but, you know, getting a credit card uh, while you're a college student um, can come with its own benefits. You know, getting a credit card early on can help you start building your credit history. You know, your length of credit history actually accounts for about 15% of your credit score. And so most people starting out when they're in college just may not even have enough of a credit history built up yet. So as a result, they may have a very low credit score or no credit score at all, because again, they just don't have enough credit history built up yet. And so getting a credit card while you are in college can help you start building that up so that by the time you are maybe in your like late 20s or early 30s um, and you decide that you want to upgrade to a new credit card, you will have had more of a credit history behind you to be able to qualify for better cards with better terms. However, again, it is a very personal decision to make. So if you don't feel ready 
for your first credit card, you can always talk to a parent about becoming an authorized user on one of their credit cards. So when you're an authorized user on a credit card where, you know, it's being paid off in full on time each month, no missed payments are being made, this can actually help build your credit score. And you don't even have to, um, you know, uh, make a payment or anything like that. Of course, though, like if you're if you want to like pay your parent back for, you know, a purchase you made on their credit card, of course, like <laughs> that's great. But um, being an authorized user on a credit card where there's a lot of these really good money management things happening can help you build your credit score. So by the time you are finally ready to have your own credit card, you might have already built up enough of a good credit history to qualify for cards that'll give you more favorable terms like a lower interest rate. Those are such great tips you shared. And it's so funny that you mentioned, you know, worrying about, am I going to do something wrong? Am I going to mess something up? Because I feel like so many people have that, you know, cautious attitude towards money, myself included. You know, I'm always worried, like, am I clicking the right thing? You know, when I was signing up for all these, you know, things that are going on with my job and, you know, everything. Um, so I just, I'm so glad that you mentioned that as well, because some people might feel like, oh, it, like, it, does everyone feel like this or is it just me? So I'm glad that you validated everyone by saying that. Um, <laughs> And, and also, I didn't know about that authorized user thing. I think that's such a great tip you shared as well. Yeah, I was actually an authorized user on my dad's credit card before um, we had that conversation about me getting my own credit card. Um, I don't remember how long I was an authorized user for, but it honestly, that because of that, my length of credit history is kind of in a pretty like decent place, um, you would actually be surprised by um, what is considered a long enough length of credit history. It turns out like a few years is not enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so having that under my belt within my credit report really helped me to start building up that good credit. Wow, that, that's that's crazy that you know there's such so many things out there to do with these finances that we don't learn like in regular <laughs> school or college or anything that that's just waiting out there to be seen. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have one final personal finance question for you. Um, so you know this is this definitely must be like an optional thing for everyone, but um, I think a big topic out there is you know investing your money because you know as we saw you know the market can go up and down based on what's you know going on in the world. Um, so when do you think is a good time or if it, if it is a good time to invest your money as a young professional? Yeah, so first of all, I love investing. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, you know, if your goal is to build wealth, you need to be investing, you know, and that is something that I learned uh, through experience is that you just have to be investing. One of my goals, which I um, wrote about this for work is to become the first millionaire in my family. <laughs> so of course I have to be investing in order to reach that goal. But um, a lot of experts recommend investing as soon as possible, as early as you can, because 
the more time you have to grow your money, the more you'll end up with. You know, when you give yourself a lot of time in the market, your money has the potential to grow even more. And so that's very important, but you should also make sure that before you jump the gun, make sure you're covering a few other financial bases first. So first things first, you should have an emergency fund before you start investing. And that's because like we said earlier, an emergency fund can help you cover those unexpected costs that pop up. But if you're investing before you have an emergency fund, you run the risk of having to sell off your investments in order to cover an emergency expense. And keep in mind that when you do sell your investments, you will owe taxes on that money. So not only will you have to pull out of the market, but you're also going to have a tax bill alongside it. So you definitely want to make sure you have some emergency money saved up before you start really investing seriously. The other thing you want to make sure you have an order is you want to make sure that you're paying all your bills on time already because you don't want to be, you know, defaulting on payments while you're also investing. You want to be making these responsible choices before you start putting your money into the market. And then the other thing you want to make sure you have is a little extra spare cash to invest with. You know, you don't want to have to, uh, you know, forego things that you really, really, really need for the sake of investing. So you want to make sure that you have some spare cash that you can use to invest. And when you're just starting out, you should keep in mind that it's totally okay to keep things simple. You know, you don't have to do any fancy schmancy trades or anything like that. I know there is so many like uh, articles, videos and podcasts and social media posts out there where you see people uh, going all in on crypto and like becoming millionaires and, you know, investing tens of thousands of dollars into one stock or one fund. You know, you don't have to jump all in right away. It's okay to start small. And in fact, it can actually be a really good thing to start small because you dip your toe in the water. You kind of learn how things work with like a very non-intimidating amount of money at first. And from there, you can work your way up. That's actually what I did when I first started investing. I started using a phone app and I would invest small amounts of money, like literally $20 here, $30 there, sometimes even $5. You know, I was just investing whatever small amounts of cash I had on hand that I wanted to put into like a stock, for example, that um, I really liked. And that gave me some exposure 
and allowed me to learn on my own at my own pace um, at, and with money, with an amount of money that was comfortable for me at the time. And the more I learned, the more I started investing. And so I really began building up my portfolio. And so, you know, like I said, uh, to begin with one person's best time to invest may be a little different from another person's best time, but make sure you have that emergency fund, pay your bills before you start putting money into the market, have some spare cash to invest and start small. That's so interesting. Um, I think that there's such a perception out there of people thinking that, you know, investing is all these fancy people, you know, on the trading room floor, you know, doing all these, investing all these big amounts of money, like you said. But um, I'm glad that you mentioned too that, you know, you can start small and you can, you know, start even as a young professional, because I think that, you know, we're seeing so many more of our generation get interested in investing in money and that sort of thing. And especially with the, with all the, those news outlets you see there, like you were mentioning about talking about those people starting out with crypto and everything. I think people are really starting to look into it. Absolutely. I think it can be very easy to become inundated with, you know, all this going on around you. Like every time you turn around, somebody's posting about how, you know, they 10x their money with this stock or whatever. You know, it can be a little overwhelming at times, but, you know, you got to stick to your plan. I think with investing, it can also help to create a goal so that you're investing with something specific in mind, so that you're reminding yourself why you're doing this. You know, for me, um, like I said, one of my biggest goals is to have a million dollars. So I want to invest with that in mind. So I'm not making any risky trades. I'm not like making super impulsive decisions. I am staying invested, staying my course, you know, diligently um, investing every single month in order to reach that goal. So I think reminding yourself of why you're doing it can be a really great sort of protective factor from all of this, you know, uh, all of this um, wild like trading going on. Yes, definitely. So thank you so much for sharing all of those personal finance tips. I hope that answered everyone's questions that I've heard from about, you know, personal finance topics. Um, and something that I want to know too, from a communication side, I think it's so important, especially working with clients who are in business to, you know, be well-versed as a public relations professional on all of these personal finance topics that are going on, because I think it's so important to be following the market and, you know, everything that's going on in finance to be able to provide support to your clients and know what's going on. Because, you know, as PR professionals, we always want to be, you know, versed on everything that's going on in the news. And I think definitely finance is a big part of that. Absolutely. I completely agree. So I have one final question for you, and it's something that I ask in all my episodes. Um, and my show is all about um, women's empowerment. And I love sharing the stories of women in communications and, you know, journalism and media who are doing these awesome things just like yourself. Um, but I always love to have my guests share their favorite girl boss. So Jasmine, who is your favorite girl boss? And it can be one or more, more than one, but feel free to share anyone that inspires you. 
Yeah, I would say a pair of women who are doing such incredible things when it comes to personal finance and who I really, really look up to are Tiffany Aliche and Mandy Woodruff. They are the co-hosts of the Brown Ambition podcast. It's a podcast uh, aimed at women um, and it's all about money and some career stuff sprinkled in there and even some life stuff, life, sorry, lifestyle stuff sprinkled in there too. I love their podcast so much. They're like, they, they brand themselves as your financial best friends, not your financial experts. So it already takes on a very approachable tone. I always learn so much from that podcast. It's definitely one of my favorite financial podcasts. And, you know, Tiffany, um, she's also known as the Budget Nista. So she built this entire empire on personal finance and money management. And she has been doing such amazing things. Uh, she came out with a book called Get Good With Money, which is a fantastic read. Um, it's a really great book. So they're always doing such great things, posting amazing content, speaking to really great, interesting experts in the field. And I really admire their work a lot. Wow, that's awesome. And I feel like I say this every single time, but I love this question because I always learn about women that I've never you know, heard about or heard about their work. And it sounds like they're doing such valuable work for the finance industry. And I love her name, the, the Budgetista. I think that that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Tiffany and Mandy both have really interesting backstories too. Um, Mandy actually also used to be a financial journalist. So I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, they're, they're doing such great work. I'm always so excited to go on Spotify and see their latest episode. They post on Wednesdays and Fridays usually, and they also take listener questions too. So I always really like hearing what questions other people have and what's going through other people's heads when it comes to their career and their finances. So I really love their podcast so much. Well, I'll definitely have to check out their podcast because now after hearing you share all your personal finance tips, I'm pretty interested in what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, and so everyone check out her articles on NBC Universal's various platforms. Um, and just thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed this. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy this episode? Head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Want to drop us a line? Click the link in our Instagram bio to leave us a voicemail. And who knows, it might even end up on the show. See you next week for more tips and tricks of the trade.